Hey guys, this is Slow Bishop with Radio Rothbard, and I wanted to let you guys know about the first Mises event of 2024. On February 17th, we will be returning to beautiful Tampa, Florida for an event dedicated to inflation, causes, consequences, and the cure. While the government tries to hide the consequences of inflation in their official statistics, Americans see and feel it every time they visit the grocery store. The state and its media lapdogs try to blame inflation on corporate greed, but the true source of inflation is the Federal Reserve and the banking system. We're going to be tackling this issue with a great lineup of speakers, including Joseph Salerno, Patrick Newman, and our new Mises president, the great Tom DeLorenzo. Uh, we have a special code for Radio Rothbard viewers for a 15% discount. That's uh, Rothbard24. And you can uh, find more about this event at Mises.org slash Tampa 2024. Hey, guys, this is The Bitch with Radio Rothbard, and we've got another great offer for Radio Rothbard listeners. We have a free book that we want to send directly to your doorstep. If you are a fan of this show, you have no doubt heard us discuss Murray Rothbard's classic Anatomy of the State his dive into the mechanics of the state as we know it, what the state fears, what its greatest threats are. It is one of the all-time best Rothbard reads, a personal favorite of both myself and Ryan. You can get your free copy as a Radio Rothbard listener by visiting Mises.org slash RothPodFree. That's R-O-T-H-P-O-D free. You can also find the link in our show notes. Welcome back to Radio Rothbard. I'm Ryan McMakin. I'm executive editor at the Mises Institute. And with me, of course, is my co-host, Tho Bishop. But we also have a guest this week. We have Dr. Gilbert Burdeen. And uh, Dr. Burdeen is an associate professor of medicine at Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center and an affiliate of the Free Market Institute at Texas Tech University. Uh, and we have lots of friends at uh, Texas Tech, so it's uh, good to have Dr. Bradeen with us today. And I thought of him when I saw this Texas lawsuit against Pfizer and uh, some of the claims Pfizer was making uh, to support uh, political support for their uh, vaccine. And, uh, and of course, they never explicitly said they wanted it, but uh, certainly vaccine mandates didn't hurt them at all. And so these issues keep coming back. And we're going to look a little bit at, uh, we're going to use Dr. Berdeen's expert uh, knowledge on this to look at uh, how has the language been manipulated? Um, and what is the truth really, as far as we can tell, about the effectiveness of these vaccines and just some of the narrative around them. And specifically, this issue of relative risk versus absolute risk that is mentioned in the in the Texas lawsuit uh, is relevant. And Dr. Bredin did an article on that, uh, wrote an article on that. Uh, and you can find that on Mises.org. That came out uh, November 24th, back in 2020. And the title of that article is What the COVID Vaccine Hype Fails to Mention. And so I would recommend checking that out. But we'll discuss some of those issues here right now on Radio Rothbard. And so, Dr. Berdeen, let's just uh, 
really let you, I think, introduce the main issue here of, of risk. And then I think maybe we can look at some of the broader political implications of that. But just help our audience when they read a Reuters report on this lawsuit, and it says that uh, the attorney general is saying that uh, they were uh, using inappropriate numbers when speaking about risk levels. What are the issues there, and, and what do they? What vocabulary do they need to know? And really, what are the basics? Well, it starts at uh, the nature of COVID. Um, you have exposure. You have cases. You have people going to the hospital and you have people dying. And so the way language has been used, the public is uh, conditioned to think that whenever they hear COVID case, oh, this is somebody who's going to die, or this is somebody who's very likely to die. So then uh, Pfizer comes out with their uh, vaccine trial and says, our product has a 95% efficacy against uh, COVID. And so that sounds pretty good, but um, they that language hides a lot of the truth about what's going on. Uh, so first off, uh, COVID is very age dependent. The risk you had of acquiring a serious illness and dying was very dependent on age. Uh, if you look at elementary school children, uh, their risk of drowning was greater than the risk of dying from COVID. So the risk to children is extremely small. But if you just look at the public as a whole, um, being exposed to COVID, uh, your chance of even ending up in the hospital is less than 1%. Uh, so from that point of view, you, you don't have to do anything and have a 99% efficacy. So what good is this 95% efficacy of the vaccine? Okay, so the way they generate their numbers is they have a control group that uh, does not get the vaccine. They have a treatment group that gets the vaccine. And then they look at the incidence of COVID in the two groups. So the incidence of having a case of COVID over the 90-day duration of this trial is less than 1% in the untreated group. Um, uh, and if you look at the risk in the vaccine group, the, the likelihood of having a case is smaller than that uh, by about a factor of 20. So the ratio of those two numbers is where they get their 95%. But the actual benefit of getting the vaccine is, is quite small. And when you're dealing with small numbers like this and long odds like this, it's frequently helpful to look at the number, what's called the number to treat. So how many vaccinations need to be delivered to save uh, one case? And it turned out based on Pfizer's data, given their uh, trial group and the way it was made up, it was over 150 vaccinations to prevent a single case. Now, what do they mean by a case? Well, they mean that you tested positive by PCR for COVID. So they tested you before, the trial starts and you're negative, and then they test you again. You may not even have any symptoms, but you test positive by, by PCR. Uh, and th they're calling this a case. 
Now, this is not what the public is thinking when they are thinking of a case of COVID. They are thinking somebody who's in an ICU in the hospital and, and may have less than a week to live. So the, the language is extremely different depending on you know, which side of the fence you're on. So the actual benefit of the vaccine uh, from this trial was quite small. Um, over 150 vaccinations needed to prevent a single case. Now, uh, based on the data, they didn't even, they couldn't even show a benefit for hospitalization based on their initial data because there were too few people hospitalized. And uh, actually the number of deaths was greater in the vaccine group uh, that never got reported uh, because they hid those. They basically just disqualified anybody who died uh, from further analysis and said, oh, this couldn't have been the vaccine. And the CDC went along with it uh, when they changed the definition of a vaccine injury. They said, well, anything that happened within 21 days of getting the vaccine couldn't have been due to the vaccine. That's crazy. I mean, if you drop dead 10 seconds after the vaccine, most people would assume it was the vaccine that did it, but not the CDC. <clears throat> Well, it's 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 kind of feels like a blast from the past talking about all of these things, right? Because we remember how relentless the propaganda was at the time, where you just pointing out these things on Twitter would get you banned immediately, and discussions about relative risk versus absolute risk were just simply verboten in a lot of these platforms. Uh, right. I, 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 I'm not on Twitter. I'm not on Facebook, which is the only reason I didn't get banned from these platforms. <laughs> I've done all of my talking uh, on platforms like yours where you're insulated from that. So I'm, I'm still allowed to send you material. <laughs> and it is worth pointing out that uh, one of the articles that you published on uh, uh, November of 2020 before you, you had the the various mandates and things like that, you are writing on this particular topic, uh, raising some of these concerns that uh, that are now within this lawsuit. And, you know, that, that's one of the most interesting aspects to this is the degree to which that the, the example of COVID as horrific and, and you know, just the, the strong handed approach that the government took, both in terms of trying to force a specific type of treatment, if you will, with the vaccine at the expense of others, the heavy-handed censorship with the uh, both administrations uh, working with big tech companies to censor any contrary information. You know, one of the, the silver linings from this very dark period in American history has been, I think, the general awakening of individuals to the, you know, the, the very misaligned incentives the, the capture of these regulatory agencies, the extreme skepticism of kind of the, that big government, big pharma complex there. And so I'm interested in your perspective of, you know, do, you, do, do, you, do you believe that this, this general awareness has been, is, is, is that itself a, a positive lining? Um, you know, obviously when we talk about political responses to it, whether it's a, a state-driven lawsuit, um, some of the legislations come out there. Some of that you know, might have its origins within sort of political opportunism, but it seems that the change amongst the people is something more real and, and perhaps uh, longer lasting. Well, there's definitely been a change. Um, the, the common man 
uh, is now aware. I mean, not everyone, but certainly to a much higher degree than before. The common man is aware that uh, the CDC, the FDA, and other government agencies um, are lying to you on a regular basis. Uh, so the level of trust in these agencies has fallen considerably. Now, if you're you know, the head of the FDA or the head of the CDC, this is a terrible thing. Uh, you want everybody to just do what you're, you know, what you tell them to do. Um, unfortunately, the awareness, this level of awareness has not hit the medical community in, in quite the same way. Um, and there's still a, a big gap between the patients and the providers as, as to what's going on here. Uh, now, I will... Uh, I, I'm aware that people are a lot less enthusiastic about pushing these vaccines, but they're still pushing them. Um, and this is really only true in, in the United States and Canada. Uh, pretty much all over the world, the vaccine programs have been stopped uh, because of concerns of uh, myocarditis. Uh, there are also concerns about falling birth rates and various other issues. And it hasn't helped that the agencies who are supposed to investigate these things don't seem to be the least bit interested in why are people still dying long after COVID um, has ceased being an issue. And it's interesting, I think there's a, a, a federalist dynamic to this as well, because you have seen states like Texas, um, states like Florida, that kind of seem to be the tip of the spear and trying to push back against some of the the federal government's narratives here, though it is interesting, you know, here in Florida, our uh, Surgeon General, Dr. Uh, Joseph Latipo, he has made very strong statements about how no one under the age of 65 should get the vaccine for any reason, um, you know, has kind of uh, uh, communicated general skepticism of the efficacies and the trade-offs there um, for a long period of time. And yet that message is droned out even amongst, say, like county health departments, where you know they're kind of just passing along the CDC guidelines. If you're a, a pharmacy within the state of Florida, in spite of what the Surgeon General is saying at the state level, I, mean, I, I know people that have gone to pharmacies asking, you know, are they telling their, their people coming in asking about vaccines what the state attorney or what the Surgeon General is saying, and that information is not getting out there. And so that's where I, you know, it's, it's interesting seeing state governments kind of be the, the friction there between this national COVID narrative that continues to be controlled by, you know, the, the Fauci believer types out there versus a lot more of this, this state level skepticism and which is now being reflected within this Texas lawsuit. I'm interested to see how many other states kind of jump on board with this uh, going forward as well. Yeah, so the, the uh, Surgeon General in Florida is correct. If you're under the age of 65, now we, we, don't, we don't have the U.S. data because the CDC refuses to make it available. Uh, even Congress can't get it. Um, uh, but other countries have made it available. And uh, the United Kingdom, for example, and, and I've written on this, um, uh, and other people have as well. But if you're under the age of 64, the all-cause mortality following the vaccine rollout was greater by a factor of about two 
um, in the vaccine group versus the unvaccinated group. Um, and so there's definitely a safety issue here. Uh, the lawsuit doesn't get at the safety issue. Uh, the lawsuit does get at the um, uh, prevention of transmission issue, which uh, the early trials um, did not even address that issue. Uh, they did not even attempt to address that issue as to whether the vaccine would prevent transmission of disease from a sick person to a healthy person. And yet this was the inherent assumption in all of the vaccine mandates. The vaccine mandates weren't there uh, to protect people um, because if you wanted to get the vaccine, uh, you could take it. And if it works, then you would be protected. The idea was we have to protect everybody from those people who won't get vaccinated because they could be super spreaders. And there is absolutely zero data uh, that supports that the unvaccinated are more likely to transmit the disease than the vaccinated. Uh, if anything, it's the other way around, which gets to, again, it gets to the language of exposure, case, illness, uh, hospitalization, ICU care, and death. And these are all stages of the illness. Uh, and the nature of our immune response and our defense response is much different along the way. And the vaccine doesn't even address all of them. Um, so if, if you start at the exposure level, so let's just assume the air, you're in a large room and there's a, a number of people in that room who have COVID and they're exhaling COVID particles and you're breathing the same air. So you're exposed, the air going into your lungs contains uh, viable COVID particles. Now what's going to happen to you? Well, if you're healthy, nothing. Um, the, the first response, it, it's sort of like in medieval times when a king would attack a, a neighboring king. And so the army would approach the castle and before the army even gets to the gate, the defenders send out their army and there's a, a battle on the field. And if the defending army triumphs, it's over. And nobody in the city has even been touched. Uh, and this is what happens with our T cell response. That's the earliest action and the T cell response is occurring on the surface of your airway, which is actually part of your external body. It's not interior, even though it would seem like it is, but it's the surface exposed to the hazardous environment. And so these T cells knock out the virus particles before they even attach to the cells of your body. So you haven't even been infected yet. And, and so what happens if you successfully defend at the T cell stage, you don't even know you were exposed. You have no symptoms at all. Um, and no, you don't transmit the disease because there's nothing to transmit. Uh, any virus particle in you is dead. Uh, so the next stage that comes is if the virus actually latches on to your airway lining. And so this is, again, uh, using our medieval analogy. Now they've brought the battering ram and they're trying to knock down the gate and the defenders are pour pouring oil and lighting it on fire on top of the battering ram people. And there's this battle for the gate. Well, the, the virus hasn't entered the cell yet, but it's certainly attacking the surface. 
And your level of response is what's called IgA immunity. And this, these are antibodies produced only in the epithelial cells of your respiratory tract and your GI tract, because that's what its purpose is, is to protect entry of hostile organisms into the body. And so again, if the defenders are successful and they pour the oil on those bearing the battering ram and kill all of them, the battle is won and the gate has not been broken. So if you're a person in this situation and your IgA response uh, defeats the virus, you may have a sniffle or you may have a dry cough or you may have a sore throat for a day or two. And that's it. You don't even have a fever. Okay, so this is just a nuisance uh, to you. And so again, so we started at people who are exposed and fewer than 10% even get to the stage where they need to call up their IgA response. And of those even fewer than 10% actually get infected. The, The virus enters the gate, breaks the gate down and enters the cell. And this is the point where all the antibodies they're talking about in the media come into play. Um, So this is where what's called IgM and IgG antibody are used to defend once the virus is in the cell. Now, if you get the vaccine, the vaccine only stimulates the IgG and IgM response. It doesn't have anything to do with the T cell response. So part of the reason that people who decline vaccines like in the Amish community and whatnot, seem to be healthier is because they're constantly refreshing their T-cell immunity and their IgA immunity because they're constantly being exposed to hostile organisms and defeating them before they even get sick. That's why they're so healthy. Now, uh, if you do actually get infected, well, the vaccine can help, but they, they talk about the vaccine preventing infection. It can't. It can't possibly prevent infection because the antibody response that the vaccine is directed at doesn't get triggered until the virus penetrates your cell. And, and so you have to be infected. Now, the vaccine can certainly, if it's effective, can certainly prevent you from getting sick. You know, so you can, you can be um, uh, infected and have a low-grade fever uh, and a sore throat for a few days and then get better. Uh, and that would be a very low grade infection. And the vaccine could certainly prevent you from going from that stage uh, to being hospitalized. That's quite possible. But the vaccine won't help you defeat the organism before it gets in your body because the response that it generates won't get triggered until the virus enters your body. Now, is, is this different from other types of vaccines or is that vaccines in general? That's vaccines in general. Now, lately they are being clever and they're working on inhalable vaccines where you spray something in your nose. And the idea there is to trigger an IgA response, which is, um, you know, you would like to defeat the virus at that stage. But even those types of vaccines don't really... Um, uh, work well for the, the T-cell response, which is your first line of defense. But the jabs, all the jabs are only IgG and IgM. And there have been a number of studies, ever, even at the earliest stages, that showed that people who seemed to get exposed but never got sick 
they don't have any antibodies and, the, uh, and nobody could figure out why don't they have antibodies? Well, they're only measuring the IgM and IgG. When they look and they measure the IgA, they see, well, yeah, they do have antibodies. And that's why they never got sick. And of course, the distinction that you made about this lawsuit being not about safety concerns with the vaccine, but rather um, kind of false claims on efficacy and dynamically, that, that, that is very important, I think, to the specifics of this lawsuit, because I think, you know, as, as most of us are probably aware of, the, the liability protections that companies like Pfizer received from the federal government um, dealing with vaccine injuries that are, are also true for, for other um, vaccines in, in the various schedules and the like. You know, that is not the question of this lawsuit. Rather, this is more kind of relying upon um, sort of the False Claims Act out there. And one of the things I was amused when looking at some of the specifics of the False Claims Act is there's various penalties for uh, subsidizing kickbacks and, you know, which are typically kind of seen as, oh, well, you know, you're, you're uh, a pharmaceutical companies uh, inc- uh, providing financial incentives for doctors to push, you know, pills and things like that. I mean, that's a big aspect of the oxy- uh, oxycodone lawsuits that uh, uh, Purdue uh, pharmaceuticals faced. Um, dealing kind of with response to the opioid crisis. And yet, of course, when it came to the, the vaccine, the, the federal incentives out there to, uh, to get states to push vaccines, you know, the, the entire kickback dynamic went completely out the window when it came to COVID with just how much federal money w- was out there to try to get as many jabs and as many, as many people's arms out there as possible, as well as kind of coinciding with kind of the propaganda campaign overstating the efficacy, particularly when it came to transmission. That became kind of the cornerstone of justification for all these uh, barbaric uh, medical crackdowns and and, uh, mandates and the like. Right. And so even today, now that the pandemic is over and we have a lot of data in retrospect, there is not one shred of evidence that the vaccine reduces transmission. So this idea that this was a disease of the unvaccinated spread by the unvaccinated was a lie. And it was a lie designed to sell vaccines. Um, And the the, the problem is the uh, safety side of the vaccine. So the Pfizer trial, uh, which didn't address safety at all, Uh, Well, it didn't officially address safety. It unofficially addressed safety by throwing anybody who had an adverse event out of the trial. Um, And this has come to light uh, recently. Um, But their their trial was only 90 days. And what's coming out now from, you know, in a large number of places, the UK all-cause mortality data. We now have this recent data dump from New Zealand, which is based on Uh, the payment system for giving the injections. We now see that the peak in deaths following the vaccine is six months out. Um, And and so this trial was not able to to detect this phenomena because it didn't observe long enough. And interestingly enough, they they broke the trial. Um, At 90 days, they gave everybody the vaccine. And, and from my vantage point, it is seen that they have tried everything they can. And I think that was one of the reasons for this mandate. They don't want any control group that we can say, look, why, why aren't these controls getting sick and dying? 
they don't want any control group. And I think even now they're stalling. They're hoping that if they can hold out uh, for five years, then all of the there'll be a new baseline and the new baseline will be the post-vaccine death rate. Yeah, it's been real interesting to see how the the political process works in this um, this junction between people who uh, are, say they're they're just discussing science and they're they're completely neutral on public policy, and then <laughs> so when you have a lawsuit like this, suddenly they deny that they they were involved in any sort of political element here at all. And so you can see that at work with this whole relative risk versus absolute risk thing, because you could, as soon as the lawsuit happened, you could see all of the articles just came pouring out of a variety of daily newspapers and online sites like Ars Technica. Uh, I was just looking at an article on that this morning. It was explaining in a very lofty manner what the difference is between absolute risk and relative risk and that real experts agree that only relative risk matters and we're making a technical argument here and uh, this is something that uh, you common people should not get too concerned about. When the reality, of course, was in that uh, the, the, the political discourse was to trot out all of the experts, say to the general public that this reduces risk of dying by 95%, which into any educated person's mind, any educated layman's mind would be, oh, it almost eliminates my risk of death. Uh, amazing, fantastic. Uh, not taking into account at all the fact that, well, your risk of death was already rock bottom if you're a 40-year-old healthy person. And so what they're trying to do now is it's stage one. They, they say all of these things for purposes of pushing a very specific political policy. And then and then they use all of these uh, these vaccine experts who are in the employ of Pfizer or the government CDC people. And then after the fact, once they start to get challenged in a lawsuit like this, what they say is, oh, we were always just totally neutral on public policy. We just. We're only talking about the science of risk levels and all of that. So we're, we're confused that you people are now talking about how the, the public perceives this 95% uh, reduction in risk. That We never intended for this sort of information to influence the public. And it's so obviously disingenuous, but that is apparently the method uh, that is being employed. And I find it quite remarkable. And so the lawsuit, of course, as far as I can see, is completely appropriate. They're claiming that, yes, you used these particular claims to push a public policy that um, that was not nearly as beneficial as you claimed it was. And so now we're going to say that you lied. And clearly it was lying, but it was lying while maintaining a certain level of plausible deniability about what their real claims were. So. Uh, they're nothing. They're not stupid. The people who made these claims, but certainly they were um, obfuscating the truth for sure. Well, again, on the safety side, they were lying, and it's going to eventually come out that they knew they were lying, um, because it, it, it's become apparent that even in those first trials, they had adverse events within a day of the vaccination and they just refuse to acknowledge it. Um, so the standard of 
dealing with uh, COVID. So you're a COVID case if your PCR test is positive. Then it doesn't matter if you're a gunshot to the head, it's still you died from COVID. Um, but in the case of the vaccine, oh no, it, it, if you drop dead a minute after you got your jab, uh, that couldn't possibly be the vaccine because the vaccine doesn't, t it takes 21 days to t fully take effect. So anything within that 21 day window, we're going to throw out. And then they, they continue to deny the stuff that continued to happen after the 21 days. Uh, and they're saying, oh no, this is, you know, it's like these football players that drop dead. Oh, no, this, oh, this happens all the time. Well, no, it doesn't. Um, and it, it's not that the deaths are more likely in young people. It's just they're more obvious. Uh, you know, if you have a 60 year old person drop dead from a heart attack, well, that happens. And so it's not as noticeable. But when every week a 20 year old athlete drops dead in the middle of their sport, that is noticeable. It's hard to sweep that under the rug. I mean, they've, they've tried, uh, uh, but I think I think the tide is turning on the safety thing and it is coming out and it's all there, but the CDC is just doing its best to hide it. Well, and it's been remarkable also, you mentioned how foreign countries, they have these studies, this information that you can look at. And one of the remarkable things I think about recent years, uh, and which really we should probably tout more, uh, at the at uh, Mises.org, whenever we mention this issue around experts, a question always needs to be: Which experts? Swedish experts, American experts, German experts? Because they sure don't agree on issues related to risk in the vaccine. So, uh, which ones? Of course, we all know what the U.S. government wants, but uh, I, there's plenty of national governments saying stuff that doesn't fit the CDC narrative at all. Right. Uh, and, and again, so, again, pretty much every country except the United States and Canada have dropped the vaccine campaigns. Uh, they're not pushing it. In fact, they're trying to avoid it, um, except for us. And it, I, I, it's, it's sad. Um, and they, they are just stonewalling on letting the data come out and let the data speak for itself. Um, and I think when the data eventually does come out, it's going to be, it's going to be very sad. And uh, unfortunately, I, I think we're going to have just a terrible reaction. And even, you know, the, the well-meaning people in, in the medical community are going to get caught up in it um, and it, uh, be tainted with the same uh, brush. Uh, but what's happening at the, the apex of these agencies is just uh, evil. And, and you, you mentioned it the, the earlier in the episode, and I apologize for putting in your spot if you, if you don't have a, maybe a, it's, it's a very big question here. But um, you mentioned how the, the medical community in the United States um, seems to be dominated by this sort of technocratic impulse I know in talking with um, physician friends or people in the medical community that I'm friends with, um, typically older physicians that have gone through a lot of things, you know, they were the ones that were kind of ringing the bell earliest in my community about the scientific mal malpractice going on for a variety of reasons during COVID. 
and yet younger physicians seem to be the most enthusiastic on kind of following the CDC guidelines. Um, you know, when we think about, well, you know, in Europe, there's a lot more uh, uh, criticism from their expert medical class, a continent that we more often think about as being sort of state captured in terms of their medical industries, right? You know, it's, oh, it's Sweden and, and the Scandinavian countries that have the healthcare model that Bernie Sanders and the Social Democrats like to point to. Do you have any, any opinion on why the American medical industry seems to be more captured by this sort of technocratic impulse than places like Europe? Um, and is that, is, there a, is that a generational dynamic to which some of the ideologies of higher ed institutions that seem to be very, um, you know, I, I don't, don't want to use the word progressive, but seem to kind of really have soaked in this sort of technocratic impulse in a variety of s sectors. Do you think that's a, a leading component to it? Or, you know, what, what from your, your point of view is, is kind of responsible or kind of one of the, the perhaps one of, one of the leading causes for how captured American medicine really has become? Well, you're correct. It has been captured, and it is the younger physicians who are most captured. And I think this is institutional. They're being taught this way. Um, as they progress through their medical education, they have to pass these standardized exams and they have to accept the standard answers to everything. And if you're given information in a question, it must be correct. That you're never given wrong information. You're never given the incorrect diagnosis. And the correct thing to do is to say, wait a minute, this can't be right. Maybe we should repeat tests. Um, uh, so they don't, they, they don't teach students how to handle conflicting information. They don't teach students to be skeptical of what you hear in the beginning. Um, I've been in sessions where uh, students have been lectured that um, uh, it, it, the, the basis for uh, a medical, uh, an evidence-based medical system is only believe things that come from official organizations. Don't believe in Wikipedia, don't believe in, you know, some newspaper. And this is a logical fallacy called uh, appeal to authority. Uh, and so, yes, if, if an authoritative person says something, you should give it its due, you should listen to it and analyze it and see what it seems to you. But the idea you should unquestionably accept something just because it comes from a person of authority, uh, that's standing logic on its head. The merit of an argument is based on the argument, not on the person who articulates the argument. Um, and I run into trouble on this, this guideline stuff all the time because People ask me what I think about guidelines. I tell them, well, they're good guidelines and they're stupid guidelines. Um, and I don't even, I think the, the students don't even think much about, well, every year some of the guidelines change. Well, how did that happen? It's because people challenged them. People said, no, this is not right. We can do better. And they come up with better guidelines. And some of those guidelines will be challenged too. Uh, it's the same thing as this this statement that the science is settled. Science is not settled by definition. Science is always one experiment away from being overturned and stood upside down.
a few years ago, we had a, a, a doctor from San Francisco present a very fascinating paper at our uh, Austrian Economics Research Conference, uh, Dr. Michelle Akkad. And he was talking about, he was pointing to the extent to which the over-reliance of coding when it comes to treatment, then that, that, that was a byproduct not only of Medicare and Medicaid, but also the impacts that Obamacare had in terms of uh, dealing with the, uh, the financial aspect of compensation for medical services was restricting was kind of taking away critical thought when it came to treatment that so often it's kind of, you know, what, what are you able to bill for a patient? And that, that has had a direct impact on the quality of medical care. Do you think that's a, an aspect as well that plays into this, where if, if you were coming up within a medical system, while it's, it has the facade, you know, it's attacked for being, you know, free market, but instead is still kind of confined within the extent to which we have a system that is very overly relied upon third, per, th third party insurance providers that has a massive impact from uh, government programs like Medicare and Medicaid. Is, is that, do you think that is playing a role as well in kind of trying to, to kind of create a, you know, putting, putting specific concrete boxes into treatment that is uh, leading to some of these dynamics? Uh, absolutely. It's, it's been a, terrible corrupting influence. The, the coding system is corrupting everything um, to the extent, I mean, you can look and see what happened with COVID. The reason everybody wanted to use remdesivir is it was part of a protocol. And if you use the protocol, you got paid more money. Uh, but this has been going on for decades. Um, so Hospital, every hospital employs somebody whose job is to look through the record and see where you can tweak the reimbursement if we just say something happened. And that something doesn't have to be true, it just has to be plausible. Uh, so I'm gonna give you an example. Um, you have somebody who has pneumonia and uh, you know, they come from the community and it looks like community acquired pneumonia. Their chest X-ray is typical for community acquired pneumonia and they get a very simple penicillin based drug and they get better and they go home. And OK, it looks like it was community acquired pneumonia. So then you get a query from the hospital administrator that says, well, can we code for pseudomonas? And you say, well, no, this person didn't have pseudomonases, but the sputum culture grew some pseudomonas. So I guess they did have pseudomonas. And so the test results become the de facto definition of, of what's happening at a very uh, fundamental level. Uh, and so, you know, at one, at one point people kind of play along, says, yeah, so we can say they had pseudomonas because their culture grew pseudomonas, even though we didn't treat them for pseudomonas and we don't think they had pseudomonas, but we can say they did. But then people start believing their own nonsense and they start believing everything that's in these records and they don't realize how corrupt these records are and meaningless. Um, because stuff is in there just so you can charge more money for it. All right. Well, I think we'll wrap up then with that uh, for this episode of Radio Rothbard. Thank you very much, Dr. Berdeen, for joining us today. And, uh, yeah, we'll see how this lawsuit turns out and see if other states follow suit. And, 
you know, 20 years from now, are we going to be seeing TV ads saying, well, if you took the COVID vaccine between October of 2021 and such and such a date, you're eligible for a settlement. And just as you see now. And so, yeah, this story is not going to be over for many years. Uh, so <laughs> we, uh, yeah, we'll have to return to the issue, I think. Oh, yeah, this is going to be a hot topic for some time to come. And thank you for having me. This was very enjoyable for me as well. Well, thank you very much. And thank you, Tho. And thank you all for listening. And so we'll see you next time.